I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm and the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to the Excelsior Capital Club podcast. Today I have with me Nish Patel. Nish has a background spanning across real estate investment banking, management consulting, and machine learning driven applications to emerging asset classes. Throughout his career, Nish has been involved in the investment and financing of over $2 billion in transactions across product types. Nish currently sits on the board of directors for companies collectively valued in excess of $600 million. Nish, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Brian. So <laughs> we did a panel discussion in New York a month ago, I guess, in May. Yep. And the genesis of that was because I got introduced to you, I think, by two different people in one day, if I remember Within like two hours of each other. Yeah, <laughs> over email, which is wild, just how big the world is and how small it is. So we got introduced by two people who I respect immensely. So that was a cool touch point. And then you came in as a savior because... This family office conference in the city, I was supposed to moderate this kind of prop tech web three panel discussion. And we just, it was during the spike of COVID and we lost two of our people. You happened to be a good sport and came last minute to bridge the gap for us in New York, which was terrific. So I'm glad we could also have you come on the show and kind of dig through some of the things that we touched on in the panel discussion. So let, let's kind of start there. Prop tech. So term that gets thrown around a lot. Could you maybe provide a definition of what you consider prop tech today's environment? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think prop tech is a very broad term. It's really anything that 
is technology that touches the built world in some way. So that can mean so many different things, right? It can mean everything from business models like an open door that help facilitate the buying and selling of, of houses. There's mortgage technologies that create efficiency there. There are cybersecurity functions that reduce fraud. Every different piece of anything that touches the construction process or the real estate process, the property management process, or even you know the consumer and tenant experience process all have some sort of link to this broad umbrella of prop tech, which you know has a lot of sub verticals in it. And the term itself is pretty new. You know, I think it was coined you know a few years ago and really caught on you know just just a few years ago. So people are still discovering what it means and applying their own definitions to it. But I think it's a pretty broad umbrella term that. I think encapsulates really in one sentence anything that that touches the built world. And the analogy I draw is kind of what's called, you know, traditional finance and and DeFi, right? Where you've got this old lined industry that has not really embraced technology like other asset classes or industries have, which can be, you know, this a cliched term of being disremediated very quickly and dramatically. But we've seen that play out in traditional finance, be it through crypto or blockchain. Real estate, you know, notoriously kind of an old white guy business that has been resistant to change. But we're seeing things play out pretty dramatically here. I know in my business over the last 10 years, just the my tech stack, which is a term I didn't even really know until three, four years ago, is increasingly important with how we operate, be it on investor relations, acquisitions, asset management, et cetera. Given how big the real estate market is, kind of like finance, what's a specific area that you focus on when you look at investments or your own edification? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I'll answer that, I guess, in two parts. One, I think a quibble I like to say is I think prop tech now is where fintech was 10 years ago. And, and I think I really do believe that's the case. I think, you know, even five years ago, I think what we were end up, what we saw is there's a lot of ownership was concentrated, like you said, in, in, in a much older generation of, of boomers that had experienced different waves of capital appreciation and kind of reached the point in their lives where, you know, we're making money doing what we're doing. Why should we change or worry about what a tech stack is and adopt new solutions? I think two big trends have, have kind of changed that dynamic. And that's really, I think, only happened in really the last five years, more so catalyzed, I think, in the last couple of years. One, I think there's been somewhat of a changing of the guard. I think there's a lot of institutional ownership or even just mom and pop ownership that is now passed down to the hands of the kids who are millennials and finding ways to use productivity, adopt new software and new hardware. So from adoption standpoint, I think there's been a lot more momentum and traction. And then the other thing that I think has had a pretty material effect is COVID. I think COVID has made a lot of owners and property managers take a big step back and reimagine what value is supposed to mean. How do I value an office building? How do I value a hospitality property? How do my tenants even engage with my assets? So that, that all has been completely changed. And a lot of paradigms have been flipped on their heads in, in just the last couple of years. And so I think that has also made a lot of owners start to think a lot more conscientiously about ways they can automate things, disintermediate things, adopt new practices to generally scale whatever they're doing better, quicker, cheaper, faster. You know, in terms of where we like to focus, I think there's a lot of different models. And so 
you know, I get asked this question by, you know, a lot of LPs around, you know, the way that we think about our focus, because, you know, you might go and see a, you know, an open door or other iBuyer models, you know, stuttering or failing like Zillow had to fire sell, you know, big portfolio that they had because, you know, they were carrying too much balance sheet risk in, you know, really acquiring properties, single family homes in arguably like the the peak in value of, of single family homes historically, you know, and so I think areas that we tend to generally shy away from right now from a macro perspective are ones that rely on the value of real estate assets, because there's a general contraction in some areas more than others, but there's generally a contraction in value from a macro perspective right now and kind of Q2 going into Q3 of 2022. And, uh, and then other models that rely on transaction fees that come from velocity of, you know, new sorts of purchases in real estate. I think those are models, especially as there's like pressure from an interest rate risk perspective, there's, there's definitely a slowdown. Areas that I think owners are going to gravitate more closely toward will be things that automate their functions can cut down costs in their leasing office, you know, things that can reduce their opex, maybe give them some competitive edge from a data perspective, you know, really anything that is very quantifiably able to save owners or managers, save them money or make them more money. That's really, I think, fundamentally where we've kind of more recently veered toward business model wise, I think we tend to have a lot more domain expertise in software, especially B2B software, as opposed to hardware, which could face challenges in scalability. I think you're seeing that with a lot of the access control systems that end up getting stacked or have, you know, grown to, to later stage mature stages in, the, in their growth cycles where, you know, even aside from hardware prop tech focused companies, I think you're also seeing this broader trend in anything consumer related or e-com related where because of supply chain issues, a lot of companies over ordered and over upsized their inventory and they're now realizing that there's actually demand has started to soften and wane for some of those products and they kind of overshot themselves in some ways. So that's kind of causing some 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 near-term stress and, and turmoil, which, you know, which which I think we've been lucky to kind of be able to stay away from. You know, we also aren't necessarily, you know, as excited about tech-enabled service businesses, though I think there's gonna be a lot of those out there that streamline a number of different processes in through standardization in some way or, you know, efficiency creating tools that that leverage some sort of backend system. But but I think if I had to distill down what we right now are really focused on are, are really tools that can help owners really across property types, save money, make money, automate things and do so in a, in a pretty high margin scalable way, ideally through software. So what's a concrete example of this? I mean, what's what's a company, you know, if, if you don't feel comfortable naming the, the company itself, I understand, but if you could give kind of a real world example of, you know, a technological advanced business that is enabling, you know, these asset owners to, to kind of save money or maybe increase the velocity of their acquisitions or asset management. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So a, a company that we invested in about a year ago, it's a company called Snapped, S-N-A-P-P-T. It's a fraud detection software for multifamily tenant screening. And, you know, what that really means is when you go apply to live in a building, you're going to submit your bank statements or pay stubs. You know, what they discovered was two things. One, there's no solution out there that can systematically be able to detect fraud or tamper in some of these documents that are submitted. And then two, the frequency that it happens is 
is, is, is enormous across their now, you know, hundreds of thousands of units that are institutional, Graystar, Blink, you know, really across every class. They're noticing one in seven people, like about 14% of people are trying to commit financial fraud. Some areas like Texas and Georgia, it's over 30%. So like one in every three people is trying to commit financial fraud when trying to apply to live in a building, which is mind blowing. So the tool that they've effectively built, because the issue that a lot of landlords were having was that people would apply to live in a building, they'd add a zero to their bank account, they'd get approved, move in and not pay a dime of rent for months. They'd become squatters because of COVID, there was an eviction moratorium. It becomes very costly for, for a landlord to have to deal with that. You know, using SNAP's fraud detection tool, they're able to programmatically screen and detect using artificial intelligence and machine learning and vision recognition to be able to detect that fraud and immediately within seconds be able to scan and flag that and then prevent all this bad debt that inevitably would have happened otherwise. So, so I think that's just an example of a tool of like a systematic process that requires otherwise human attention and human time and labor. How did this process work before? It's just the guy or the girl in the leasing office that takes a look at the PDF on the screen. They have no way of doing metadata analysis. They have no way of knowing standardization and formatting. But when you can collectively lean on machine learning applications for that, that can be applied to software that creates an order of magnitude of time efficiency and accuracy that can be, be very, very helpful as a tool for landlords. The title of our panel discussion, which got hijacked by COVID to some extent, but was a, was a prop tech, web three, blockchain, you know, have we arrived or is it a false dawn? Because there's been a lot of proclamations about how these technologies are going to change the way that real estate functions in terms of capital raising, financing, you know, liquidity, all of these barriers to entry, which are very challenging from a systematic standpoint for commercial real estate ownership. You know, are there areas that you think the technology is there, but from a regulatory perspective or a, just a legal structural perspective, there are just barriers that you're just aren't able to overcome? today? You know, I think that's certainly the case in a lot of other industries that are adjacent to real estate that we've seen. I think what I have realized is that a lot of real estate owners and decision makers are just so risk averse by nature themselves, that instead of there being some regulatory barrier, it ends up being just a proclivity towards status quo and, and, and a resistance you know, towards change, Real, really, thus the name Inertia Ventures, you know, for our fund, that has ended up being the, the biggest bottleneck more so than anyone else, you know, ca- call it a, a regulatory or technological, you know, kind of ca- kind of bottleneck perspective. Um, you know, I think when it comes to Web3, one of the biggest bottlenecks that I've seen from a regulatory perspective has been around regulatory kind of issuance guidelines. So, you know, there's a few different ways to be able to go raise capital. You can go raise capital from accredited investors through a Reg D. You can go raise, you know, capital from unaccredited investors through either a Reg CF, which caps you, I think, at something like 10 million. It was at 1 million. Now it's kind of at 10 million or something. The, the holy grail of what a lot of these platforms that aim to go democratize access to ownership in real estate or be able to tap into this wider pool of retail investors, which I think, you know, over the last couple of years, we've 
we've, we've clearly seen it have a really powerful presence in, in the capital markets. I think the biggest hurdle has been getting Reg A approvals, which allow for a larger pool of unaccredited investors to participate in offerings up to $100 million. I think there's a regulatory education gap, really, I think, you know, amongst regulatory decision makers that prevents a lot of those projects from being able to successfully be able to get approval to raise and, and really kind of tap the retail in segment of investors. So I think from a DeFi perspective and from, you know, a crypto perspective, that has kind of been one of the biggest hurdles. Another kind of funny example that we've recently seen is that, you know, a, an employee at OpenSea, which is actually one of our portfolio companies, recently got charged with the first case of insider trading for front running trades on NFTs. It's fascinating because there's never been an insider trading case of anything in crypto overall, let alone NFTs. And uh, and insider trading is rampant within within crypto with some of these altcoin projects and some of these communities and, and groups. So, so I think like you know, there's probably more attention now being paid to applying some of the same regulatory frameworks that we're seeing just you know in regular security issuances toward some of these new emerging alternative assets. I think ultimately regulation's healthy, but I think you know to the extent that that some segments still have you know an education gap, which I think is still the case, there's still some work to do on the part of regulators to catch up to speed to to make sure that doesn't stifle kind of innovation or progress from a business point perspective. You mentioned fintech. The way I view it from that perspective for fintech and prop tech, it's kind of like an avalanche or a tsunami. <laughs> it's going to hit certain areas first, but eventually it's going to take everything over. Is there, in your opinion, low-hanging fruit today where there is actionable opportunities within the prop tech investment space? And what are some areas that are just higher ground that will take longer to access that eventually will come, but the time is just not right? Yeah, it's a good question. So there's a company that we're about to invest in. I'm sure by the time this airs, we'll have already invested. So it'll be fine. The company's called Damuso. So what they effectively do, they're kind of a leading rental payment processing platform. So they do really payment processing. There's interesting innovation that I think, you know, they are working on that I look at as, as pretty low hanging fruit that I'll share. And then I'll, I guess I'll also share some of the other areas where I think people are trying to apply fintech principles, but I think I find those models a little bit more challenging, especially at the current state. So, you know, one of the things Damuso is planning on doing in, in layering in as an additional product offering beyond just being the processor for rental payments, which they're digitizing. I think one of the biggest aspects of what they do is something like 15% of rent is still paid through paper checks, 15 to 30%. So they are kind of the, the leading platform that helps digitize that for landlords, cuts a lot, cuts a lot of administrative burden. But one of the things that they're doing that, you know, is, is on the roadmap in the near term that I'm shocked doesn't already exist. Automated secure deposit return. So like, you know, usually when you leave a, a building that you're staying in, you know, they'll mail you a physical check with your security deposit, like a month or so after you move out. Sometimes they send it to the wrong person that there's all kinds of errors and faults there. What they're able to do now is effectively just enter your bank information. They'll automatically ACH it to you. And if you pay an additional fee, then you can get your money back either the same day or the same week that you move out, basically right upon inspection. Considering the vast majority of, of Americans, let alone people in other countries, live paycheck to paycheck, 
being able to have like a month or two's worth of rent not locked up sitting with the landlord and having that back immediately in your pocket for you to use on food or the next place you need to rent or et cetera is immensely valuable and it just doesn't exist. No one's done it. It's not technically difficult to do. Just no one's really thought to finance that piece. Now, people have thought to finance things like security deposits at the beginning when you're about to move in. Products like Rhino or Jetty or the Guarantors will help you facilitate that initial security deposit financing piece if you really need it. But the vast majority of people don't necessarily use that kind of a product, but everybody would want their security deposit. I would want my security deposit returned as early as possible. And I'd rather just get it, you know, ACH into my account as opposed to dealing with a physical check. So I think like, you know, that is, is I think one small example of low hanging fruit, you know, and then I think some of the other areas that, that we've seen other startups spend time on are things like flexible rent payments. That sounds theoretically like a great idea, like effectively applying buy now, pay later, but just for your rent. You know, like you can say how big are companies like Affirm or Klarna that operate in this e-com space. You look at e-com as, you know, from the perspective of total spend, it's about as about equal to, or maybe slightly smaller than the total size of rent that's paid. So you can extrapolate, there's all these companies collectively worth hundreds of billions of dollars or probably now tens of billions of dollars within the e-com space. Why don't we apply that to, you know, multifamily? There are companies that are doing that. I think there's two issues with that. I think one, there's at least at current state, somewhat of an adverse selection bias where the people that need their rent to be financed aren't necessarily the best people you want to extend credit to in the first place. And then two, it's, it's also about utilization. So you can be integrated into all the properties in the country to be kind of this this solution to finance your rent. But you know what a lot of the, the biggest platforms are, are realizing that they're only seeing maybe 1% utilization of all of the properties that they're really in. So it's not just about how many properties, from a business perspective, how many properties can your sales team get into, but it's also about educating the consumer well enough to the point that they actually utilize this product. Do I think that this could eventually at some point in the future become more popular, like probably. But at current state, I think that's something that a lot of players that have attempted to to provide a flexible rent payment solution have, have really, really struggled with. Want to learn more about investing in alternatives? Get started by joining the Capital Club, where you'll get exclusive access to alternative investment opportunities, premium content and education, and an affinity peer-to-peer network of industry professionals. You can sign up by going to our website at www.excelsiorgp.com. You referenced this a few times in your last statement about Klarna valuation. We're recording this in the middle of 2022. The equity markets have officially gone into a bear market territory. Many people think we are in a recession already, if not imminently going to be in one. The venture space and, and tech in general has been beaten up pretty badly. Klarna had a pretty pretty vicious haircut on the most recent valuation. What is the state of play right now for venture in general, both from the GP and the LP side? You know, many people have told me that you know a recession is the best time to invest in venture because that's typically when really good ideas come about and the wheat is separated from the chaff because valuations force bad companies to go out of business. 
What are your thoughts in the market today in the venture space? Yeah, no, I, I think I think that's all very true. Some of the best companies in the world, at Ubers and Twitters and Airbnbs in the world, were built, you know, in downturns, like in recession. So I think there's pros and cons. I think from a bigger picture perspective, there's a lot of fear. There's generally a lot of fear. The way that I think about venture as a place to allocate in the context of the current macroeconomic landscape is one where, you know, if you invest in public equities, because everything is marked to market immediately, you're dealing with an immense amount of volatility because we are without question in an environment of uncertainty. We don't know what rates are going to be at the end of the year. We don't know what the geopolitical climate is going to be like at the end of the year. We don't know what inflation is going to end up looking like and how it's going to respond to some of the monetary policy decisions that, that, that the Fed is making right now. So I think there's a lot of uncertainty and that creates, you know, a lot of turmoil in, in, in public markets. The other factor that I, I think is also fair to, fair to mention is that as interest rates go up, your cost of capital goes up and the way that you value a lot of these companies, you have to change the terminal value calculation and discount the cash flows that you're projecting much, much more than, you know, we have in, in an environment where money is cheaper free, like we've been in, in the better part of the last decade. So I think that makes, you know, it really confusing from an LP's perspective of where do I allocate my capital? The reason that I think that allocating into venture and earlier stage growth is really the best place to invest right now is because when we find companies, we're investing in companies that will have over 24 months of runway that are going to be growing 100 to 300% year over year where we are investing with structured downside protection with liquidation preferences. And you know what that really means is that we're going to benefit from all this organic growth that's going to be created in businesses that don't need to go tap public markets for liquidity in the next couple of years. They're going to be able to weather this storm because they have enough cash in their bank. They're being efficient and thoughtful about how they're spending their money now. And they're growing double, tripling, or quadrupling in size year over year. And you know what we're going to benefit from as investors is because the environment is so fearful, there's been kind of this shift back from you know the power really being in the founder seat to now the power really being in the investor seat. I think you're, you're not seeing as many 100x multiple pre-revenue like or pre-launched companies that are out there. You know, I, I think we're starting to see valuations become a lot more reasonable. I think I think other investors are starting to be a lot more conscientious of underwriting the way that they structure the, you know, rounds that they lead into earlier stage companies as a function of what, you know, exit multiples look like from a public market comp perspective and what they will eventually look like. I think the opportunity here is benefiting not only in investing in very high quality businesses that are category leaders that are going to have to probably deal with less competition because a lot of their competitors are not going to be operating as efficiently. I've seen a lot of operators act very, very inefficiently and irresponsibly, I think, over the last couple of years, which makes sense, right? I think it's also a function of like a lot of the decision makers at these companies have been operating in an environment the last five, 10 years where it's just been about growth, growth, growth. Nothing else really matters. But now we're in an environment where you got to think about unit economics. You got to think about your margins. You got to think about your burn. You got to think about your runway, not just growth. So I think that's going to make a lot of businesses that aren't really run very well or, you know, don't necessarily deserve to be in the category leading seat to be able to shut their doors down. And, you know, that's going to create, you know, tailwinds for the companies that are best in class, that do have the best technologies that are run efficiently. And those are the businesses that we invest in. 
where now we're, we're able to invest at much more favorable terms at much lower multiples with, with much, much better protective covenants. And so I think what we're going to benefit from as investors and as, as a fund now, and why I think we're more excited now to deploy than we ever have been is because we're going to benefit from investing in high quality businesses that are organically going to grow and multiply their revenue as well as multiple expansion that'll come from investing in an environment now where we get very favorable terms to one where we're going to end up exiting these businesses or you know doing follow-on raises for these businesses at multiples that are going to be materially higher as will be knock on wood in an environment where there's going to be a lot more certainty, surety and and just really just clarity around some of the broader macroeconomic variables that are kind of up in the air right now. So that's the GP kind of inv- investor perspective. If you're an LP listening to our conversation, an individual, a family office, a wealth management firm, venture is notoriously difficult asset class for folks to enter. You know, the majority of the gains and the wins are by the minority of the GPs and funds. Do you have thoughts about the right way for people to invest into this asset class given today's environment? Yeah. I mean, look, I think at the end of the day, it's always about diversification. Like you always want to have enough exposure to every different type of asset class and every strategy that you think ultimately makes sense for you. So, you know, I think as an LP that invests in funds, one thing that I would be thinking a lot about is inflation and what does that do to, to, to your returns in real terms? So, you know, your fixed income strategy that yielded you, 2%, 3%, 4%, like, okay, great. Inflation's like eight or 9%. You know, that's better than holding cash, I guess, but you're not really going to be meaningfully yielding anything similar with a lot of other, you know, credit that's gotten squeezed or a lot of, you know, private equity strategies that oftentimes have structured LBOs that have their credit priced in, with floating rates. So that's going to put a, a lot of pressure on, you know, and ultimately the margins that, that they're going to be able to, to juice from that. Similar kind of thing exists in, you know, in legacy real estate. I think now is kind of going to be the time for, for you to be a lot more selective in every, in every asset class. I think now is the time that active management is more important than it ever has been. I think in the last, you know, kind of decade or so, you and I would advise people just go invest in an index, go invest in a, you know, a broader basket because, you know, everything is doing pretty well. Now, I think there's going to be winners and there's going to be losers. And so I think what's really important is making sure that the stewards of your capital are, are thinking very conscientiously about being able to have differentiated strategies to be able to pick apart the winners and the losers and, and find ways to drive value beyond just, you know, kind of being being stock pickers in some way. So, you know, from an LP perspective, I, you know, would probably think about allocating less to fixed income strategies, which I think LPs have already been doing. I think a lot of wealth managers have already been advising their clients to make that shift anyway. And I think there's a lot more, there should be a lot more of a focus on alternatives, you know, strategies, including real estate, but also including like, private equity and venture capital strategies that, again, don't rely on mark-to-market daily, you know, kind of features where they have to be subject to this kind of volatility. Like that's not going to be a favorable environment for for you to be in really for the next couple of years. You know, I think alternative strategies that are really centric around growth are are, are really going to be the best place to, to be able to capture, I think, the biggest market dislocation and the biggest opportunity to benefit from value creation 
as we, you know, kind of move away from, you know, eventually what, what could be a recessionary environment that lasts for another six months. It could last for another year. It could last for another three years. We don't really know and we don't really care because the time horizon of the company that we're investing in are way longer than that. And the, the counterparties that are customers of the businesses that we invest in are going to be, you know, most, most, mostly pretty shielded from, you know, broader recessionary kind of impact, you know, as well. Has your evaluation of exit strategies changed at all? You know, in today's environment, SPACs are, are not really functional. The IPO market is largely defunct. Yeah. VCs are, I assume, having trouble raising larger funds. Has that shifted? What are you hearing from your operating companies about kind of what that backend exit transaction looks like? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of company, a lot of portfolio companies that we've had that were planning on IPOing later this year, next year have pushed that back. I mean, indefinitely, basically. I think a lot of companies are like, how could we just kind of put our heads down and keep on growing? I think the reality too, is there's still a lot of dry powder out there, you know, within like later stage growth companies, like there's been a record amount of dry powder that's raised in the last, you know, nine to 12 months even that has yet to be deployed. A lot of these funds are racing against a ticking time clock of IRR. So they need to go deploy this capital. They want to do it intelligently. I think most of what I've seen is companies going back to their, you know, VCs and investors and re-upping at flat rounds. I haven't seen too many down rounds yet, but I have started to see some down rounds. But I think, you know, a lot of a lot of investors also, you know, want to, you know, be conducive to a, to a, a more favorable kind of growth story, you know, for those companies. And, you know, and, and so I think a lot of companies have like, great, we were planning on going and IPOing, you know, in the next year or two, but, but now, you know, it looks like we're going to have to wait for another couple year or two, at least let's just go back to our investors if we're not profitable yet, especially and re up. So we have a, a bigger cushion and we can kind of weather the storm. That works for some companies, companies that, you know, have investors that are still bullish on their ideas. I think there's a lot of models that are going to suffer. And I think we've started to see some of that with layoffs, but I think it's going to get a lot worse. I think models that are trying to make your grocery delivery go from like 14 minutes down to 12 minutes, like I think those those models are are, are going to take a beating because the unit economics don't necessarily make a lot of sense. A lot of neobanks are going to suffer because that's that space has also become very saturated. And I think investors are just not willing to pay as, as high multiples. I think some spaces have gotten knocked harder than others. FinTech multiples in public markets, for example, have, have compressed from closer to 20x down to like, you know, 5x or lower, you know, and, and, and so, you know, and, and so I think it depends on the type of business you are. Certainly some businesses have gotten affected more than others. For the most part, I think companies have kind of all has kind of unanimously decided the IPO markets are basically closed, like for the rest of the year, at least like no, nothing is happening. How can we keep on surviving? How can we keep our growth numbers up? How can we, you know, continue to stay capitalized so that, you know, when there is more market certainty, we're going to be able to, at that point in time, then go and take advantage of strategies. And so, you know, I think companies that, you know, com- I'm still seeing acquisitions happen. So companies that, you know, are like, great, well, IPO, you know, is not a viable exit strategy for us anymore. Maybe we get acquired. Again, there's a lot of financial sponsors on the private equity side that are still very well capitalized and have raised massive, massive vehicles that are going to be making acquisitions, whether they're financial sponsors or strategics that are like, great, will we eventually want to go IPO in X amount of time? What's a way for us to keep on growing if we feel like we've already started running out of growth organically? 
let's inorganically go acquire a bunch of businesses and roll up companies so that we can keep on tagging them to our bottom line and show this kind of growth story. And eventually when we IPO, we'll be able to, you know, kind of show our strategy a little bit more. So I think those are some of the things that I've seen, you know, and I think some of the businesses that, you know, will do well. And and I think we'll, we'll have a, a tougher time. Nisha, I want to thank you for coming on. It's been great. Super interesting space. I think there'll be a lot of value creation within the prop tech world, honestly. And I do believe that this recession pullback will ultimately lead to better management teams and better companies. I do worry about something getting washed out with some of the larger macro trends that don't kind of relate to their underlying businesses. But you've got some great companies in the portfolio and a super sharp guy with a great network. If people are interested in learning more about the investments you're making or engaging with you, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Yeah, absolutely. You know, so we're, we're pretty active on, on LinkedIn and, and sharing what we're doing. So it's inertia ventures on LinkedIn. And, uh, you know, my email is an, an open line niche, N I S H at inertia.vc. You know, I'd be happy to, you know, share more information about both the deals that we're doing the other way that we oftentimes engage with real estate family offices and, and other players, especially within that realm is, is being able to help support them on even just knowing what, what their tech stack should look like. A lot of owners don't necessarily know or, think about ways to automate the rest of their tech stack or, or think through optimizing it. So that's been another way that we've you know, provided effectively a free service to our LPs to make sure that they're being really thoughtful and conscientious about the, the solutions that they're adopting. So you know, we'd be happy to anyone that's in your audience, you know, I, I would respect and you know, would certainly be happy to you know, be, be a resource for any way I can. Awesome. Nish, good luck moving forward. And I uh, look forward to reconnecting to New York soon. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Brian. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.